If you have your copy of God's Word there in front of you, I invite you to go to Romans chapter 3. Uh, Romans chapter 3 is where we'll be uh, this evening. Uh, going to continue to make our way through uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and uh, tonight consider uh, the, the way we've entitled the sermon is Total Condemnation. Total Condemnation. So Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse number 9. Let's uh, read this all the way to verse 20 together this evening. This is God's word to his people. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. This is God's word to us, and we thank him for preserving it for us. Let's go to the Lord this evening in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to worship you. I ask that you would be with us now as we study your word together. As I, ask that as I preach it, you would help me to remember the things in which I've studied, and it would be clear and easy to understand. Be with us now as we make our way through this text. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You know, one of my favorite things that Jess cooks for us from time to time is homemade pizza. She adds uh, the dough and then she actually doesn't add the dough. She makes the dough. And, and then we add our own sauce and toppings and cheese. It's wonderful. It's, it's honestly one of my favorite things that we do from time to time. And, and one of the things that has to happen when she makes that dough is she adds a little bit of yeast to that dough to, to make it rise. And it doesn't really take much at all for that to happen, for that dough to rise. Just a, the smallest amount will, will take care of it. And it permeates all of that dough and helps it to actually rise and and it allows for us to enjoy that pizza together and I, I love that illustration of that little bit of yeast getting into the dough and, and and permeating all of it in order for it to rise because it's actually a pretty good illustration of what happens with sin um, and how it permeates all of our life the only problem with that illustration is that it, it falls short when we think about the idea of sin being added into the dough. Uh, the difference between Christians and, and really people in general is not the fact that some little bit of sin is being added in and then it permeates, but rather that sin is part of the initial construction of man. Um, sin permeates everything that we do. And here in this particular passage tonight, Paul shows exactly why um, we live under sin and why sin permeates all through 
who we are. And so tonight we need to look at this text and understand exactly how pervasive sin is and what exactly it has done to us. And we've titled the sermon Total Condemnation because this is not just a slight charge that is being brought against humanity. In fact, it's widespread. And so in in three ways, we're going to see this kind of play its way out through this text. And the first way that we see that is uh, first in verse number nine with this idea of social condemnation. Look at verse number nine. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Paul is continuing his argument about humanity beginning here in verse number nine. If we think about the argument that Paul is making, going back to Romans chapter one, verse 18, or verse 19, and expanding all the way to this particular point, Paul is hammering the idea that we all are sinners. Now, now we know from last week that Paul affirms the benefit of growing up in a, in a, society or culture or home where the word of God is present. But what he does now is turn back to his original argument that we all sit under the condemnation of sin. Paul again makes the point that both Jews and Greeks have been previously charged with their sinfulness. Verse nine, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. One of the things that Paul is doing here, and and he's making the point multiple times, he wants there to be no possible way that anybody could leave his writing and understand that they are not a sinner. He wants to communicate that regardless of their social makeup, whether they are Jew or Greek, they sit charged under the condemnation of sin. Paul is stating here that everyone is captive to sin. Look at verse 9 again. They are all under sin. That little phrase, under sin, carries with it the idea that sin is not just an additive. It's not something that has been added. It's not even something that you just do. A a lot of times we talk about sin and we say that people sin and we take it as the activity and and the committing of a sinful act. And, And while that certainly is true, the point Paul is making here is not that people commit sin, but rather they are under it. They are completely controlled by it. There is this idea that they are totally and completely sinful. There is no social claim to any type of heritage or orientation or uh, a claim to ethnic identity, church membership, belonging to a particular group of people that gets you out of being condemned for your sinfulness. This is the, the phrase and the reason why Paul is using that claim of being under sin. We sometimes love to think that by our associations, our, our clubs and our societal standing, that somehow that makes us okay. And the Apostle Paul is putting the pressure on us here from God's word to see we're not okay. We're, we're, we're not better than we think we are. We're actually much worse than we think we are. We're all sinful. We've been charged 
So I would just ask you tonight, do you try to make yourself look good to others based on a social standing? You know, we might think that because we find ourselves in a bracket of college students that that we're not tempted uh, in this way, that because we traditionally are lacking in funds or um, going to school, we don't have this social standing. But even inside of the organizations and the clubs that we'll be a part of, a lot of times we'll try and justify ourselves according to our social standing. And and then I would just ask the person who finds himself tonight as a, a Christ follower, do you believe yourself to be tempted in an area to place emphasis on a social standing rather than on Christ? I think Christians can be guilty of this, of running back to this argument, of running back to this idea that I'm socially okay. When a lot of times we'll do that by our church membership, our affiliation to religious people. And it's important tonight that you understand and you check to make sure that you're not holding on to some sort of social, ethical type of making yourself right but that you understand that the only way that you can be made right is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But lest someone were to read this opening verse and think themselves okay, Paul moves the argument and makes the argument much tighter on the individual person. And that kind of moves us into our second observation. Not only is there social condemnation, there's individual condemnation. Look at verse number 10. As it is written here, the Apostle Paul is going to string together a a grouping of Old Testament verses to to bring this point home in a much stronger way. Look at verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Paul begins by pointing out the fact that there is no person on the planet who is righteous in and of themselves. But they are born under that penalty of sin, that they come out a sinner. They're born a sinner. There's no one who finds himself being righteous. He continues on, and we're going to kind of break these verses down to see the totality in which individuals are condemned. And so he continues on. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. So the Apostle Paul continues to belabor this point of saying there is no one who is inherently good. There is no one who seeks after God. No one wakes up and begins to immediately search for God. We have done a disservice in the Christian world by referring to people as seekers, as people who go seeking for God. Beloved, let me just explain. No one, no one wakes up in the morning looking to add a little bit more God or Jesus to their life. They don't naturally have a natural tendency towards it. It's only through the preaching and proclamation of God's word. And and I don't mean the The only way that people come to know Christ is through preaching of sermons, that if you go out and share the gospel, that is a proclamation of God's good news. 
It's through that message being communicated and the Holy Spirit drawing people to Christ. And we see that in the New Testament all over. And when that happens, that's how people are awakened to the reality of who God is. No one in and of themselves decides to chase after or go seeking after God. They might be looking in the sense of some sort of religious activity might make me feel better, but that's not seeking after God. That's seeking to appease and to pacify some inward struggle with their own guilt. It's not a genuine looking for God. And and the Apostle Paul makes this clear. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. No one naturally does good deeds. We live in a society that loves to talk about charity and the the work of, of philanthropy and the idea that there are just some people out there who are just good people. They're just good-hearted people who give away their money, who give away their time. Beloved, when the Apostle Paul says there is none who does good, he's not saying that it's impossible for people to do good activity, but there are no people who in and of themselves seek to honor and glorify God through their good deeds. There's always a different motivation behind them. Isaiah makes this clear. He he talks about this idea that our righteousness is as filthy rags. This idea that when we are left to our own devices to try and be righteous and do good things, ultimately before God, because they are not rooted in making much of him, they fall short. There is no one who does good. He continues, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. In verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul takes the level of individual condemnation to another level. He refers to their speech. Their words betray their supposed goodness. They show, they actually show the totality of their depravity through their words. When we listen to the way that people talk, when we listen to the way that people speak about others who are not in the room, how often are we reminded that our words are not inherently good? How, how often when we consider our own thoughts, even those of us who claim to be Christ followers, our own thoughts, our own motivations, the way that we think about speaking to people reveals the totality of our depravity far more than we are willing to admit. That's what the Apostle Paul is pointing us to. He wants these Jewish people and Greek people to understand this is not just a mere outward action problem. This has permeated every bit of their existence. And the problem that we see and face in our society around us right now is everybody trying to tell everybody how good they are. One theologian said, The whole world parades around trying to tell us how good we are and how okay we are. Yet all of humanity can agree on one simple fact. We are not okay. The Apostle Paul 
turns the supposed righteousness that the Jewish people would have believed that they had because of their inheritance of the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul turns these Old Testament verses back on the Jewish people and enlightens the, the Greek people to understand there is nothing about you that is inherently good. And he brings this particular grouping of Old Testament passages to a close in verses 15 through 18. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The brutality of the world gives greater evidence to the world's depravity and to humanity's depravity than probably anything that we've mentioned up to this point. One need only to survey the amount of bloodshed that has happened in the last 100 years to see this point. We are not given to caring about humanity. We're not given to caring and valuing human life. As much as we would love to talk about the idea of honoring people and caring about other people, humanity does not inherently value other humanity. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God has created us in his image. And with that image comes a, a theological phrase that we will use called the Imago Dei. And the Imago Dei teaches us that because God has created us in his image, humans in general are created with inherent worth, value, and dignity. If you look around the world at large, the world does not believe and hold to this principle. Culture does not value human life. In fact, we value some life more than other life. In fact, in our principle of execution, in thinking about the principle of executing what it looks like to, to honor humanity, we, we don't value each other as made in the image of God. If we did, we would care far better for each other than we truly do. But we can't. That's the whole point. The Apostle Paul is not saying that the, the need of humanity is that they be better at taking care of humans. We, we, humanity as a whole has made the argument that we should try to do this. And they've kind of just come up with different strategies for doing this. One of the strategies would be this idea that if humanity were just more educated, they would care for each other. And that has fallen short because the more educated that we are, the more we take care of ourselves, the more we inherently value ourselves other, over other people. This idea that maybe if humanity just would recognize the good that is in each other, then we would be better at taking care of one another. That is simply not the case. Humanity left to their own devices leaves us begging the question, what is wrong with all of us? Because left to our own devices, the only thing that we can be assured of is that we will care more for us and more for ourselves than we will for any other person. Because left to our own devices, according to God's word, we are inherently selfish, self-centered people. And so I would just ask you this question 
tonight. Are you guilty of thinking too highly of humanity? It's not a, a wrong impulse to look for the best in others. It's not the wrong, a wrong impulse to, to seek to, to see what is good inside of a person. Provided you understand that at the end of the day, all of those things that you see are not inherent goodness in them. And provided for the fact that you understand that part of taking care of humanity is seeing their needs rightly. Christians should be the first people to respond to crises. Christians should be the first people on the scene to take care of the broken, the ostracized, the downtrodden, and those who cannot care for themselves. But not because we are great humanitarians. No, because we understand what Christ has done for us in sending his son to pay the penalty for our sinfulness, our unrighteousness, and by placing his righteousness on our account has freed us to show Christ's love to other people. That is what should drive our view of humanity. And then I would ask this question. Do you try to justify people without Christ? To make them better without Christ? to say, look at this noble thing that they do. Look at this activity. Look at this amount of money. Look at this thing, this operation they're involved in. And yet all of those ultimately have no bearing on saving them because they are without Christ. This condemnation carries forward. It's not just one that is based on a social condemnation or an individual condemnation. Finally, it's one of morality as well. It's a moral condemnation. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. Point two actually leads us perfectly into our final point tonight. Paul, in these concluding verses, argues that there is no amount of law keeping that will actually save you or justify you. The argument that Paul is making here in verse number 19 is that the defense given for why I'm okay actually is exhausted. Now, look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. This verse carries forward the argument that it is like a defendant standing before a judge who has exhausted every opportunity for appeal and every argument for innocence. There is no way that you can possibly appeal to the law any longer, anymore, or in any respect as it being a justifying agent for you. Yet how many Christians so-called Christians, how many people try to justify themselves by their moral behavior, by their keeping of some sort of law or legal precedent or some sort of religious standard that will make them right. This is the argument that Paul is making. There is no amount of morality, law-keeping, religious extremism, religious fervor or zeal that will make you right before God. It is impossible to stand before him and point to that activity as something that makes you right with him. 
Verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. The law is the knowledge of sin. This is the key, the key point here. The law points to our sinfulness because we're not able to keep it completely. We're not able to keep it rightly. I'm not able to keep it rightly. You're not able to keep it rightly. There, there is nothing, no religious activity that you can do that will make you right before God. So, so what, the question inherently comes tonight, how can man escape this condemnation? How can man be made right with God? How is it possible if all of these things are true about all of humanity that they can be made right with God? The answer tonight is a simple one, a profound one, a difficult one, and yet again, a simple one. The answer to how man can be made right with God is first and foremost, seeing this text, understanding that I am a sinner, that, that I qualify and everyone around me qualifies as being a sinner. And then from moving from there to understanding and seeing that Jesus Christ, the one that the New Testament and the Old Testament predicts and the New Testament reveals to us, this man who was fully and truly man, yet fully and truly God, comes to earth and lives a perfect and sinless life. And then at the end of his life, 33 years old, is crucified for our sins. And he bears the full judgment of those sins. If we were to flip over to the Gospels, we would read as the sky turns black and the, the Father turns his face from the Son and pours out his wrath on his Son. And there on the cross, Jesus bears the full penalty for our sinfulness. And he dies and he's buried in a, a borrowed tomb. We find ourselves this week in Holy Week, anticipating that in a few days we'll celebrate Good Friday, which seems weird to call it Good Friday. Why this Friday before Easter would we celebrate and call it good? There is Jesus Christ hanging on a cross for something he did not do, bearing a penalty and a, and a judgment for something he did not do and did not deserve and is not responsible for. And as the father turns his back on the son and pours the full weight of his wrath on sin for all of humanity, here this perfect sinless substitute hangs on our behalf. And he dies. But we also celebrate on Easter Sunday, this coming Sunday, this coming Lord's Day. Why do we call it the Lord's Day? Well, because we, we, the key word is he died and was placed in a borrowed tomb because three days later on Easter morning, the, the, the women go to, to, to prepare Jesus' body even more fully. And they arrive on the scene to an angel sitting on top of the entrance to the tomb who says, fear not. 
Don't be afraid. He is not here. He is risen. Come see the place where the Lord lays. What we find on Easter Sunday morning is that the tomb is empty. The one that went to the cross on our behalf on Friday has defeated death, has defeated sin, has defeated the grave, and now is reigning and ruling. We know from the end of the gospel accounts that Jesus will ascend and ascends to heaven, and we know that he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father even now. How can you escape this condemnation? How can you be made right with God? By placing your faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. It is possible tonight for you to experience this Easter weekend in a way that you've never experienced it before, as being right with God. And I want to encourage you to place your faith and trust in Him tonight. The other thing that I would encourage us to think about as Christians, as we proclaim this good message, this message of total inability to save ourselves, this message of not being righteous, of of not being right with God and needing Christ, let us be people as we proclaim the gospel who do not see sin as a you problem, but as a we problem. I am under the condemnation just as much as anyone else. It is only because of the work of Christ that I am made right. I am no better than you. If you're watching this and you find yourself tonight, you, you've, you, you're not a Christ follower. You not identify yourself with Christ. This is not a sermon about how I'm better than you. This is a sermon about how we need Christ. And without him, we have no hope. So I would encourage all of us, non-Christian, tonight, put your faith and trust in Christ. Christian, proclaim this message. Be bold in your advance of this message. But remember, ultimately, what you've been saved from and what you are being saved to. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we love you. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for how it allows us to know and understand rightly who we are. And Father, I pray for the person who is watching this this evening who does not know you. I pray that they would be able to to place their faith and trust in you alone for the forgiveness of their sins. And for the Christian who's watching this, I, I pray that they've been encouraged and reminded again of what a beautiful and wonderful thing it is to know you, but also be pressed with the reality that we need to and must proclaim this message. Father, thank you again for allowing us to do this. Even though we cannot be together Physically, thank you for allowing us to unite together via technology and consider your word together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.